Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. Jason, we have a a special guest at the back end of this podcast when we tackle misinformation about what's happening at the border. And we have uh, Kevin Seif from The Washington Post who's going to walk us through just what's happening out there from his expert perspective as somebody who spent years in the field uh, studying this issue. So I'm super excited about it. Yeah, this was a fantastic conversation. People are going to want to hang on and listen to. Uh, I learned a lot from it. But Jason, we've got a lot of news this week before we get to that. Uh, first of all, and I know, you know, personally for you and also, you know, foundational to our country is that this afternoon, and we're recording this on Wednesday, this afternoon, President Biden is set to announce that we're going to be withdrawing all American troops from Afghanistan and that NATO is expected to follow. And so it looks like this war is is about to be officially over, a war that you served in. How do you feel and what do we make from all this? Yeah, I haven't had the opportunity yet. I found this out yesterday and I have not had the opportunity to in any way digest policy implications of this. I've, I've just kind of begun to think about it from a personal perspective well, first of all, we should we should recognize that the war is not ending, and and I, frankly, in some respects, it's about to probably intensify, um, and it's just that there, we're no longer going to be fighting in it, and and that's a good thing. Look, I mean, wars have to end. Uh, you know, we can't fight them forever, and twenty years is the longest war in American history. And if you were to go back and write the American story from the beginning. There's just no way in hell you would write Afghanistan as the longest war in American history. You just wouldn't. And so what I've been kind of trying to wrap my mind around over the last 24 hours or or less, I guess, since finding this out is the idea that soon there won't be Americans in Afghanistan. And and maybe that doesn't seem like a big deal to other people, but I had a conversation recently with a a friend of mine who's a fellow combat veteran, and, and we were, you know, talking about... PTSD and all that kind of stuff. And and he said, you know, there's a lot of ways in which our generation has had it way better than past generations of American veterans. I mean, there's no question. I mean, the way Vietnam veterans were treated was abhorrent. And and that's all that's all true. He said, but there is one thing that has been rougher for us than others. And he said, you know, their wars ended. And and it's a great point. You know, he, he was like, there's so many things about war that make it so difficult to move on from. But when the war that you that you were in hasn't ended, it's that much more difficult because you understand that that there are still people there doing that and that you're constantly confronted with the feeling of, shouldn't I still be there? And, and who am I if I'm not there and other people are? So that's really just the first part of it for me is just sort of 
thinking about it that way and what a change in my reality that'll be. Now, on the policy side, I think we have to recognize that there's a very high probability that the Taliban are going to be the big winners of this and are going to have vastly increased political power at the minimum. Um, they already have a lot of dang near governing authority, if not governing authority, in, in a lot of places in the country. But what I, and, and that is horrible and it is, it is a tragic thing. But it's also important to remember that our mission, you know, most Americans had never heard of the Taliban prior to September 11th, 2001. And our mission was to go there and depose Osama bin Laden to deny a, uh, a place from which Al-Qaeda could launch attacks against the United States and the rest of the world. And that mission actually has been accomplished. And we may have to revisit it um, because ISIS, may, it may become a launching ground for them. But in the meantime, you know, you can't, I don't think you can say we won the war or frankly that anybody wins any wars, but that mission did get accomplished. Yeah, I think about this from the perspective of the students that I used to serve. And a lot of them were born after 9-11. Actually, most of them were born after 9-11. And we got to the point in this war where you could be born after 9-11, you could be born after the start of this war and still serve in it. And that's the first time, I think, in American history that that's ever happened. And like you said, you know, there's a strain on those who've been serving in this war. And, you know, one of those is that we got to the point where you pretty much could have served in this war, gotten home, had a child, and that child would be about to serve in this war. That's just something to wrap your head around. Just like, what does it mean to serve? Uh, and I, and what you're saying just reminds me that, you know, and I worked in national security at the beginning of the Obama administration while we were pondering a surge, and, and we did have a surge. It was never clear to me after the first few years what our mission was. And especially after we got bin Laden and it became clear that this was not a safe haven for people trying to attack the United States. And then when you couple that with all the domestic problems we've had that have also led to a rise in domestic terrorism, the, the aims of this war have not been clearly articulated over time to the American people. Yeah. I mean, and, and frankly, they've been lost. The, the whole idea at the beginning was we've got to deny this is a safe haven. And I, I can remember being there, you know, at the end of 2006, beginning of 2007, and having very close friends, people who I had been through training with, I mean, really close friends of mine in Iraq, some of them losing soldiers there. And, and, and you know, obviously, we had our own challenges in Afghanistan. I mean, the per capita casualty rate was the same. And I'm, I'm emailing back and forth with those friends. And what they were saying to me repeatedly was, you know, in Iraq, how frustrated they were. You know, I can remember one friend saying, I lost a soldier today, and I, I don't know what to think about it because I, I, we shouldn't be here. And, and I remember thinking how grateful I was for the fact that while we were all in danger in 2006, I remember feeling like I know why I'm here. I know what the mission is. And, you know, if you are, and I, and the, the, the troop in, the involvement of our forces is much more limited now. It is it's much more focused on on training. But make no mistake, like there are people earning their combat pay in Afghanistan. Americans every day are earning it. And 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 I just I think that we are mu we are much closer to a time where those folks are emailing their friends, and it sounds a lot like the emails I was getting from my friends in Iraq. And and so yeah, like it's it's basic mission creep. And and in this part of the world, wars last for generations. Time is different in that part of the world. And, and that is ultimately, not, it's not just the terrain. It's not just the, the, the 
nuances of the of the tribal rivalries that that can't be mastered. I mean, that's the biggest reason why so many countries that have tried to come in and you know invade and and create some sort of Western idea of order in this part of the world why why they failed is because it's just a matter of patience. I mean, these folks like. This is a reality for them over generations of war with someone, and and I'm not I'm not commenting on like the nature of the people. I'm just saying this region of the world is fought over, and that's not what we do in in America. Like we're not used to that, and ultimately that was always going to be the reason that letting it go further than the initial mission, we were never going to prevail in doing that. So, long story short, I just oh so far I've only I've only really digested this as like a. Afghanistan veteran. And I'm really glad that it's going to come to an end. And I've been saying this, this is the third gen- or third administration now that I've been saying it's time to find an exit. So for those who think like, I'm just like, oh, Biden said it, great. Um, you know, look, I didn't like how Trump went about this idea of having a peace agreement with the Taliban without involving the government of Afghanistan, which I, th- I think was a big error. But even then I was like, you know what? That's a bad way to do it, but I still want us to get closer to an exit. So that's how I feel about it. It's just, it. this has to end. As people who listen to the show know, I have, for the first time in 22 years, started playing organized baseball again, which means there are parts of me that hurt that haven't hurt in quite a while, and a good night's sleep has become even more essential than usual. So I yet have another reason to be grateful for my mattress from Helix. So Helix Sleep has a quiz that takes just two minutes to complete, and it matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. With Helix, you're getting a mattress that you know is going to be perfect for the way that you sleep. So if you're looking for a mattress, you take this quiz, you order the mattress that you're matched to, and the mattress comes right to your door shipped for free. You don't ever need to go to a mattress store again. Like I said, I took the quiz. I was matched with the Midnight Lux because I sleep on my side and I wanted something that had like a medium firm feel. So just go to helixsleep.com majority54, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that'll give you the best sleep of your life. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com dot com slash majority 54 that's helixsleep.com slash majority 54 for up to 200 hours off and two free pillows athletic greens has been gaining a greater foothold over the last several months in, in our house i've been a big believer in it for quite some time now i'm drinking it every morning for a year or something and then a few months ago diana started and then she said to me something yesterday morning that was like right out of an ad she said to me she goes this legit is the best multivitamin that I've ever had. Yeah, and I, you know, obviously I'm I'm a huge fan too, and I'm really excited that Diana's on the Athletic Greens team. But one really cool thing about Athletic Greens is they also offer this year supply of vitamin D. And actually, I had an experience this week where I got my blood work done, and it was like nearly perfect, but I hadn't been taking the vitamin D that they've been sending me, and it was off on the vitamin D. And so I just, and that's why I think they they added is that it's so important to get. All your vitamins and minerals and and vitamin D is critical, especially in this era of COVID and as we emerge from the winter. Uh, And you won't have to worry about it for a whole year if you go to athleticgreens.com slash majority. And and I will add to vouch for Ravi. I think it was last week before we recorded. Ravi was telling us about getting his blood work back and the only thing being a vitamin D deficiency. And we were like, 
Dude, you literally have a year's supply of vitamin D. You have no excuse for vitamin D deficiency. And he was like, you're right. I got I to gotta add more. Visit athleticgreens.com slash majority and get your free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs today. Well, uh, we have some other news in the week. Senator Manchin from West Virginia published an op-ed in the Washington Post a few days ago, and he he basically said in no uncertain terms that he will not roll back the filibuster, he will not change or reform the filibuster, and that if we need votes on things like the For the People Act, which he mentioned by name, then we need to get Republican support for that. And what I found interesting is that he didn't leave any daylight there. He basically said that's the only way we're going to get this done. Jason, does this mean that the bill is dead? I really hope not. For those who think that this is all performative, Ravi texted me that actual question this week. And I think my answer was, I really hope not. So like, I don't know. And what I want to, I want to feel like what's happening is that Senator Manchin is, you know, playing some sort of 3D West Virginia political chess and putting himself in the position to be able to do the right thing. And I choose to believe that because I don't know what the alternative is. But the answer is maybe. It could be. I don't know. And what I think it should be a reminder of for all of us is we have a tendency to take the status quo and the reality as it is and assume that that is the best possible political scenario we're going to get and try and make that work. And I'll use as an example the period between November of 2020 and January 5th of 2021 when we all under we all just assumed that we had not gotten the majority in the Senate. Like we all because we were like, okay, are we gonna win two Senate seats in Georgia in a special election? And then we were all very pleasantly surprised and shocked when we did. But for that period of time, we were like, we have to figure out what we can get done without a majority. Well, now we're in a period where we are going, we have to figure out what we can get done with a 50 vote majority plus the vice president. So with the slimmest possible majority and with one of those people being Joe Manchin, and we're all operating under the assumption that we will lose this majority in, in 22. Now, like, I think that that sense of urgency is really good and that it forces us to try and get every positive thing done right now that we can. But I also think that we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that, you know, it is possible that we could just elect more Democratic senators. You know, look, I understand midterms historically are not the easiest, but that's not like an impossible thing to do. Just to lay our fact on what you just said in terms of the midterms not being the easiest, essentially every president has lost seats in the midterm with the exception of 2002 with Bush uh, in the aftermath of 9-11. But politics are volatile. You know, there are a lot of firsts that have happened over the past few years. You never know what's going to happen. So this is this is something that absolutely has to get done. I absolutely believe that. And we've got to continue to do whatever we can to figure out how to make this work. But we can't lose sight of the fact that the country's going to go on one way or the other, and we're going to have to find other ways forward. Yeah, it reminds me of, you know, after the November election, I think I quoted Carville, who said something to the effect of advancing armies have the right kind of energy, the right kind of swagger. Like, we need to be confident in where we're going. You know, Danny Kahneman, the economist, talks about this, which is like, if you're a pessimist by nature, you, you not only get the, the negative consequences if something negative eventually comes, but you get to relive it every day before it happens. So you actually live with the negative consequences consistently, whether or not that event that you're worried about comes or not. And I've been reminding myself that ever since I read this op-ed because it did make me despondent when I read it. It did make me frustrated. But then I'm like, 
well, what, what are we going to do? Like you said, like, what are we going to do about this? And so that's a question I'll put back to you, which is he mentioned in this op-ed that bipartisan bill is achievable. He mentioned a couple of basic things like expanding absentee voting and sharing up certain voting rights, but did not mention redistricting. What should we make of that? Um, because you're an expert on what goes on between his ears, of course. So <laughs> Yeah, you know. who knows, man? <laughs> I mean, it could be anything. It could be column space. I mean, it could be like that that's less of an issue in, in West Virginia. It, to me, I zero in more on the idea that he wants to clearly be the person who's saying like, no, this could be bipartisan. He's saying that there are potentially Republicans who would vote for it. I don't know if that's the case. I suppose it could be. It could be the case that if the vote were happening and now we're absolutely voting on this legislation, I would imagine that there are some people, maybe Susan Collins or Lisa Murkowski or people like that who are like, okay, well, I'm not going to actually vote against this. I'll vote to keep it from coming to the floor, but I'm not going to vote against this, this bill. What I don't clearly see him saying, which is good, just as he didn't, he didn't mention redistricting. He also didn't say there are 10 Republican votes, right? Which is what it would take to break the filibuster, which. And you said that's a good thing. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, because well, because we know there's not, and he's yeah, and so he's not pretending that, and he's not, he's at least not saying, I don't know, man, I'm trying to find, yeah. I'm trying <laughs> I'm to find like, the good. Yeah, no, I hear it's, you. it's it's a really, it's either 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 we're screwed or it's a really really good job of posturing. I I don't know. You know, one of the things he said, and you know, when people were pushing him about this op-ed, he said, you know, I learned, you know, he basically that he said the insurrection changed him. And he, he, I think what he meant by that was that it made him want to be more bipartisan. I found that to be an interesting response to the insurrection because this insurrection was based on a lie that this election was stolen. The party that was responsible for that insurrection has been furthering those lies and now embedding them in pieces of legislation all over the country to institutionalize stealing the vote, basically giving insurrectionists what they wanted. And his response to that is to then not hold accountable and stop those people from institutionalizing, stealing elections. So it's basically giving the terrorists what they want. Literally, I know it's a metaphor that we use, but they're literally terrorists and he's giving them what they want. Here's what is crazy about institutions is it's really easy to get institutionalized, whether you're talking about a prison or a legislative body. Washington, D.C. has the best ceilings in America. And when you're in a building with a grandiose ceiling, it can be very confusing because it's very easy to buy into the august history of a place and forget that a lot of that history is pretty bad. Like a lot of that history is racist and oppressive. It is not, I mean, it's it's something to be remembered and not something to be celebrated. Now, a lot of that history is to be celebrated, but a lot of that history that is not to be celebrated happened in the Senate and it happened because of the filibuster. And I'm saying it's really simple to get confused by your environs and to think that there are things worth preserving that when you are not showing up every day to a place with a ceiling that grandiose. Like if the U.S. Senate took place at Corporate Woods in Overland Park, Kansas, like if that's where they met, I don't think you have the same number of institutionalists about the filibuster. I just don't. I mean, I can remember uh, a buddy of mine actually been a guest on this pod before, Don Calloway. One of his last days in the legislature, I remember standing uh, with him and he was very reflective. And uh, and I've heard Don tell this story publicly, so I feel like I can repeat it. He was very reflective about the idea that he was leaving. And he was looking up at the ceiling at the Missouri Capitol in the chamber. It's a very nice ceiling as well. And he just looked very reflective. And I remember saying to him, dude, it is just a building. Like, this is a building where we work. It's not special in any regard 
other than it's a building where we work. There happen to be some important decisions that affect a lot of people's lives made here. But like, don't get confused by the building. And I don't know, I think it's possible that Joe Manchin kind of is confused by the ceilings. And, and I don't think he's the only senator. I think there's lots of people in the US Senate who think that there's certain parts of the history that are worth preserving when they ought to maybe stop and go like, wait a minute, am I just institutionalized here? Am I like Brooks in Shawshank? In, in, yeah, in, in Shawshank. <laughs> like, I, I just I've been here so long that I, I kind of forget the perspective of being on the outside and I have to stay. I, I don't know. Well, speaking of being on the outside, Trump uh, hosted an event this weekend down in Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> awesome where he, transition. <laughs> where he he summoned the Republican Party to Mar-a-Lago and then charged them a, an exorbitant amount of money to hold the, his basically his own celebratory event at Mar-a-Lago. And the reason why I mention this is not because of the comedy involved in it, which there's plenty of things to poke fun at. It's because this event, I think, only underscored the point that is inconvenient for a lot of my friends across the aisle who want to see Trump gone from the Republican Party and who say that he was an aberration, is that he has a firm grip on the Republican Party. Basically, you had one Republican leader after another kissing the ring there and actually giving him, making up a fake award so that they could give to him. And then you had people like Nikki Haley, who had castigated Trump because of the insurrection coming out simultaneously saying that they would back him for president if he ran again. And so basically, it looks like this is his party. It's his nomination to to lose if he wanted it. And he kept repeating the lies that this election was stolen. And there wasn't the same repudiation coming from the right that we saw in the days after the insurrection. And so it's just to underscore the point that this party has learned nothing. And this is still his party. It's the party of the emperor is fully clothed. I mean, it's just like they know. Nikki Haley's known all along, right? So she made her Faustian deal like a long time ago. It's become this matter of like mandatory religious subscription that all the stuff that they know is not true. I think it's very bad for them, but obviously it's very bad for the country because it's what's driving us to be so rightfully concerned about about voting rights. But I, I feel like there's a point at which this is going to become just a bridge too far. Not, not for the politicians, like they're not going to, they're cowards. Like they're going to keep parroting whatever Trump wants them to parrot if they want to win primaries. But I, I do think that there's going to be a gradual moving away, not away from Trump, but like I, I've long thought that people are going to treat eventually treat Trump like they like supporters of the Iraq war treat the Iraq war. Like it's a thing that happened and you can't seem to find anybody who was really for it, but it just happened. Yeah. Josh Haley stepped in it this week about that too. He's been claiming, I think, to be against it. I remember him being for it, by the way. Uh, I knew him back then. And then somebody confirmed it through some blog or something that he wrote. Oh, absolutely. Like, I believe you have the receipts and they found the receipts. But dude, did anybody really think that Josh Hawley wasn't for the Iraq war? I mean, like, that dude is, he's like out of central casting for, uh, sorry, this is, this is a subject I can get very obscene about but he but he's at a central casting please do please do i mean just like he is the dude who like would say shit to people like me when we came back from overseas like then it would have been some version of like you know i would have done it but i you know had this thing going on or i would have you know if i'd have done it see i was gonna be a seal but then you know i couldn't so i you know i mean uh, all those guys like he is the i was gonna serve but guy like he is that dude who then uses that as their excuse to be like but but you guys should definitely go i mean the we 
I, I'm good with going off on this tangent for a second, because if you go back and you look at the article that he wrote where he was for the Iraq war, and my buddy Stephen Weber pointed this out this week on Twitter. If you go back through my timeline, there's a thread that I retweeted about his that, that he did on this, where if you look back at what Josh Howey said in that article that he wrote all those years ago, he compared two Marines, some guy that he knew with Anthony Swafford, the guy who wrote Jarhead. And, and, he, and he wrote about Jarhead and, and, and that experience of being in Desert Storm and, and the effects that it had. I mean, basically PTSD without giving it that name on him afterwards. And he called him a complainer. And he was like, you know, like a real Marine wouldn't complain and all this. And, and it's like, yeah, yeah. He, he said war is bad and it affects you. And Josh Hawley, you know, who's about my age and, and you know, I, I imagine wrote this not long before or after I was overseas, like is exactly the dude who would think that he has any right to have an opinion about who's a good Marine or who's a good soldier and who's not, and who should and should not complain that guy. Well, this is relevant for, for reasons other than just poking fun at Josh Holly, which is I think a, a sport and a pastime for us here in majority 54. I, I think there's a Josh Hollyfication of the Republican Party happening, and Exhibit A is J.D. Vance, you know, somebody who wrote Hillbilly Elegy, which is a book that I embarrassingly had been defending for a little while, just saying, look, this is an interesting perspective of a group of people that, at least in my life, they they kind of echoed some of the the themes I saw in Staten Island, and I, and I wanted to be generous to somebody who was clearly more conservative than me and who seemed like he was genuinely coming at this issue. And then he is now gearing up for clearly running for Senate in Missouri. And in if Ohio. you are in Ohio, sorry, not to no, disparage he's, he's the great state like of Missouri. It's okay. Uh, he's acting uh, like he's running in Missouri. And you can, you could see literally, you can go through his Twitter feed and see from the moment he made that decision. Like at one point he's like hanging with Ron Howard and going on morning Joe and, and, you know, being the guy who's like, I'm common sense to everybody trying to sell books, trying to sell his TV show. And then all of a sudden it, he becomes MAGA uh, and is like shouting out Tucker Carlson and calling out the libs and owning the libs and all this. And I'm like, this is what the, you know, like somebody, you know, once said to me, like, don't, don't look at what people say, look at their incentives. And it looks like his incentives and his actions are speaking loudly here. Yeah. It's funny. I didn't, for the audience to know, like, I didn't know we were going to go down the JD Vance route. And I've been, I've been thinking about whether to say anything publicly about JD Vance. Do you know? A, a little. And here's, here's my experience with this guy and with this book. I think you're exactly right on. Like, he's just decided, okay, well, this is what I got to say to be a member of this club. JD Vance and I had the same literary agent. And, and I just, you know, knowing, knowing my literary agent and knowing like what the intent of that book was in the first place, probably. I just don't think he was, I, I don't think at that time he held these beliefs. I don't think he holds them now, but I don't think he was espousing them then. And I've always, to be honest, had some reservations about Hillbilly Elegy that I've not made public because it's a very popular book. And who am I to like, who am I to talk down somebody else's book? But here's my reservation about it. When I talk, and, and Ravi, don't take this the wrong way. When I talk to people from the coast who read that book, they really like that book. Um, and yeah, this, now, is, this is embarrassing in, for me. Yeah, it's okay, man. You, you lived in, in, so this doesn't fully apply to you because you've, you've lived in the South and everything. When I talked to I people, I had a Ford F-150, Jason. Uh, I know, I know. 79. You're, you're, you've, yeah. got, and list, you've got some credit. I listen to country music. <laughs> yeah. So but, I'm, I'm clearly very Southern. <laughs> but, I Don't I sound it? Yeah. Very much so. Very yeah. much. Uh, but what I was going to say is like, it's interesting when that book comes up 
with people here or like my friends who live in other Southern states, uh, this being more of a Midwestern state, but whatever, we're never exactly sure what we are. There's this sort of pause, this sort of like, is anybody going to say it? And then somebody goes, yeah, I didn't get all the way through it. And then, and like, I, I didn't get all the way through it. And, yeah. and then what I realized over time is the reason we didn't, we don't get all the way through it is because like, we know those people that that's, it'd be like, like he wrote about it like it's a zoo and that, and I'm like, look, it's his family experience. So I'm very hesitant to try and take anything away. What I'm more reacting to is the reaction to the book. Right. Like, like here we're like, I don't see what the big revelation was here, but then the bigger takeaway is, okay. So if you go with the takeaways from the book, it's very hard to see how the guy becomes a conservative Republican coming right. out of that. Right. And then I remember doing TV with him. I think we were, on, I want to say it was CNN. Uh, like in probably in 17 or early 18. But what I, what struck me about it was he used the words personally as a Republican, like so many times that it was weird and awkward. Mm. And so it was clearly, there was a moment in his life where he said, I'm going to, I've decided it's as a Republican that I'm going to enter politics and I've got to prove that I'm a Republican because anybody who's read my book and heard me talk about these things in the past, we'll think that I am not a true conservative. And he is right about that. Right. And I have friends who could reach the same conclusions that he reached in his book who will tell me, I don't see how he's a Republican. And I'm like, because he has an incentive to be, going back to your point. Right, yeah. And I think like his point, basically, if I were to distill his book down to a one point, it's, hey, a lot of people I grew up with, not enough people are paying attention to them. And if you look closely... What I'm trying to tell you is that they don't view themselves as privileged, nor and and they shouldn't. They like have a very tough existence, and there's a humanity in that that maybe is helpful for us to to understand one another. And instead of the let's understand one another, he's doubling down on division and hate politics. You know, from you know he went on Tucker Carlson, a guy who was espousing the replacement theory, like basically mm -hmm. the same stuff that the people in Charlottesville were espousing just a week before. And then he and then he he not only went on Tucker, but then said this is a guy who's like speaking truth to power, et cetera. So that's my frustration with him. And good or bad book, like this guy had an opportunity to to be a, a, a uniter, and he he's decided to go the other way, which is just really depressing. And I think is is not just about him because that's less interesting about what's in his heart than what the incentives are pushing people towards right now within the Republican Party, and and why entering politics right now is a sociopath's game. Right. It goes it goes back to your earlier point uh, and why we it, we started this by talking about Trump and the idea that there are certain things that many politicians know to be total BS, that they just have to pretend they believe in order to be a part of the club. And like it's the Republican Party that's doing that. But if any party does that, that's not good in a democracy. When people have to stand up and say stuff that they don't believe in order to be a member of something, that is not good for that organization. When it comes to paying off debt, it can often feel like an uphill battle. High interest rates resulting in minimum monthly payments keeps you in an endless cycle of debt, but Upstart can get you ahead. Upstart is the fast and easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan all online. Whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating higher interest debt, or funding personal expenses, over half a million people have used Upstart to get a simple fixed monthly payment. 
And unlike other lenders, Upstart looks at more than just your credit score, like your income and your employment history. This means they can offer smarter rates with trusted partners. And with a five-minute online rate check, you can see your rate upfront for loans between $1,000 to $50,000. And you can receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. So find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash majority54. That's upstart.com slash majority54. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. So go to upstart.com slash majority54. So let me tell you how First Leaf has changed things around my house a little bit, which is that Diana and myself, when it's a special occasion, every once in a while we'll go like, let's get some wine. What we've never been are the people who are like, we should have a glass of wine with dinner. Would you like a glass of wine with dinner? That's a very normal thing to do. It's just never been our thing. First Leaf is so good and so affordable that over the last few weeks, a couple of times a week, Diana goes, you want wine with dinner? And I'm like, I think I do want some wine with dinner. Yeah, and First Leaf is a wine club where you get personalized selections of wine from top vineyards around the world right to your door. But it's so much more than that. For every bottle of wine that they give you, they give you a card where it gives you everything from notes, like is it pomegranate, cherry, it gives you pairings, so it tells you what to get have the wine with, which for me, it's like I'm a paint-by-numbers type of guy. I need that kind of information. It tells you other wines that you would like if you like that kind of wine. I mean, it's amazing. And here's the one I loved is the Gilded Letter Pinot Noir. It tells me I need to pair it with Wild Mushroom Bruschetta, which clearly they don't know how little I know how to cook. But it, it inspired me to figure that out. So thank you, First Leaf. Two nights ago, we had Garnacha red wine. Uh, it was very tasty. Yeah, look at us. We're so sophisticated, Jason. Yeah. So discover new wine like a VIP by becoming a First Leaf member. Join today and you'll get, seriously, listen to this. You're going to get six bottles of wine for $29.95 and free shipping. Just go to tryfirstleaf.com slash majority54. That's Six bottles of wine for $29.95 and free shipping at tryfirstleaf.com slash majority54. Now we're going to turn to a discussion of what's happening at the border, and we have a very special guest. It's Kevin Seif, who's been the Washington Post Latin America correspondent since 2018. He previously served as the paper's Africa Bureau Chief and Afghanistan Bureau Chief, and before joining the Post, he worked in the Washington Bureau of the Financial Times and covered immigration from both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, he started his career at the Brownsville Herald in Brownsville, Texas, right at the border, uh, and so I can't think of many people who can uh, shed more light about what's happening at the border. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Good to be here. Well, Kevin, uh, give us a sense of just what's happening at the border right now and why um, many people are calling it a crisis right now. Yeah, what we've started to see over the last few months is an increase in people arriving at the border, specifically unaccompanied children and families. And what started off in sort of January, February as a relatively slow increase spiked quite dramatically in March to a point where there were there were so many children, unaccompanied children arriving that the U.S. government really didn't have space for them. Border patrol facilities where children are initially processed were over capacity. The Office of Refugee Resettlement shelters where they're then taken afterwards were also over capacity. And so the Biden administration found itself sort of scrambling to figure out what to do with thousands and thousands of kids coming from Central America. And, you know, there's a, a big question about 
how this data compares to previous years. And I think that, you know, the two major political parties are kind of sparring over how to interpret the data. We, in previous episodes, I think a week or two ago, we looked at the data and it was kind of hard to make heads or tails over it from a, a year to year comparison, not month to month. But it seems like something unique might be happening with the unaccompanied children part of it. And that maybe on the adult side, it might be in line with seasonal trends. At least that was our reading of the data. Is that right? And and why might that be the case? Yeah. I mean, if you if you go back and look at border border crossing data over the last like 25 years, what you see 20 years ago is a huge number of single adults, mostly single adult men crossing the border. Enormous, enormous numbers every year. And the trend now is different, right? So it's it's in some ways difficult to compare or not super productive to compare overall border crossing data, because yes, the overall numbers are down now compared to like, you know, 2002 or 2003, but the, the people who are crossing, the demographics are different. And so you've got more children, more unaccompanied children crossing now, and you have more families crossing now. And so that sort of places a different kind of demand on the system itself. The way that you process children, the way that you process families is fundamentally different from the way that you process single adults. And if those children and those families are seeking asylum, then it's even more different. And so I think the raw data doesn't tell the whole story in a way. And the, if you look at the number of unaccompanied kids who are crossing, it, it's as high as it's been in the last 20 years. And if you look at the number of families crossing, it's 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 also there's a very big spike spike in 2019. But aside from that, it's those numbers are more or less as high as we've seen, at least in the last decade. So those two categories, which are in some ways the most complicated categories from the U.S. government's perspective, are, are really high. Um, there's no question about that. I think the question of whether that constitutes a crisis, I, I personally don't find that a really uh, constructive conversation. Like what, what does it mean to have a crisis? I mean, some, by some definitions, the border is in a perpetual crisis by others. It's never been in a crisis. It sort of depends on how you define the word, but there's no question that the kind of stress on the system is, is huge right now. What's your sense of whether the, the fact that Biden is president and either there, like there's actual policy change going on or per, perceptions or, anti or the anticipation of policy change that could be driving people to the border? Do we have any evidence one way or the other here? So maybe if I could just back up one second, like one, th this question of like, why are people coming? Why are so many people coming right now is kind of like the fundamental question. And it's a question that I get all the time from my editors at the newspaper, but also from my friends who are trying to make sense of what's happening at the border. And I think part of the difficulty in talking about this topic or trying to make sense of this topic is that there, there, there is no one answer. There is, I mean, there are so many explanations for why so many people are coming to the border right now. And I'm, I'm happy to, to go through the ones that I think are the most, the most important, but just to start with that, that like there is, there is not a single explanation, nor is there a single population coming to the border. We're seeing people come from a whole range of countries for a whole range of reasons. Anyway, just to start there. So your question was whether Biden's election might have anything to do with the increase in people? Yeah. And obviously the context is that there are some very strong claims coming from the GOP in particular to that effect. Yeah. Uh, and I think like, you know, a lot of our listeners are getting those types of arguments at their, you know, hypothetical family tables and gatherings yeah. and Facebook groups, et cetera. Right. So if you are, you know, a Central American family thinking about migrating, mostly from Guatemala, Honduras, or El Salvador, 
your decision is based largely on what smuggling networks are telling you or what. And, and, you know, when I say that, I don't necessarily mean someone sitting at the U.S.-Mexico border calling people across Central America. I mean, there, there are smuggling networks that have have a presence in villages across Central America. And clearly those networks have an interest in more people migrating because they get a lot of money per person um, who comes who comes from Central America to the border. And in, in many cases, those smuggling networks are telling people now is a good time to cross because there's a new president and he's being more generous to migrants. That isn't necessarily true. In fact, there are a lot of reasons why that isn't, isn't true. But smuggling networks forever have have invented reasons to convince people to migrate. Sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. But I would say that the strongest connection between people migrating and the Biden presidency is that, is that it's being kind of, his presidency is being instrumentalized by smuggling networks who have an interest in getting people to migrate. In some cases, you have people who are watching the news independently. This is often true of like teenage boys, for example, who are unemployed, who are trying to flee violence in their in their uh, in their country, who see you know some report on Facebook or on or on local television that seems to suggest that it's a good time to cross, and they join a caravan. And so you know those are people who are, who are kind of looking for a reason to migrate and you know tell tell themselves a story that now's the right moment. The connection is mostly kind of one of narrative and less one of like, just truly is a good moment to cross. Yes, yeah, substantive policy. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, and then on the flip side, uh, what do we know about what countries folks are coming from and what's happening in those countries that could be uh, driving any increase over the past year? So folks are mostly coming from the, the Northern Triangle, which is El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, um, three countries in Central America. And of those three countries, they're mostly coming from Honduras and Guatemala. Those are countries that for years have have been the sort of leading source of, of migrants to the United States. Over the last year, things have gotten dramatically worse in those countries, in part because of the pandemic, which had a huge economic um, impact on both of those countries, all three of those countries. And there were two major hurricanes that swept through Central America late last year that left tens of thousands of people displaced and made it much harder just simply to put food on the table. And so people who were already kind of like on the edge, you know, living lives where, you know, there was no economic security, no food security, kind of were like sort of tipped over to a place where, you know, they went from two meals a day to one in some cases, or, you know, they went from having three months of regular employment to one month of regular employment a year. So, I, you know, I've traveled to both Guatemala and Honduras over the last couple of months, and, and, I, and I've been traveling there over the last few years. And the sort of sense of desperation that I, I felt on these last trips was nothing like anything I'd seen before. Wow. And for that family, how do they get to the Mexico border? Because that's a long distance. And you alluded to this when you talked about smuggling networks, but what's the most common way they're going to get, they're going to travel that long distance even to get to the border in the first place? Yeah. So you kind of have two options if you're a Central American family thinking about migrating. One is you want to just sort of do it independently. You don't want to pay a smuggler. You want to travel with a caravan or with a large group of people by, by bus or, you know, in some cases, even by foot. And so this is a phenomenon we've seen over the last few years where a large group of people, in some cases, thousands of people will meet, usually in Honduras, 
at a bus station and they'll just start moving north. You know, they'll literally start walking like 20 miles a day. They'll, they'll, they'll hitch rides when they can. They'll take buses when they can. And the reason that people do this is because it's by far the cheapest way to migrate. You don't have to pay. And you also like don't have to sort of form a link with a criminal network, which is what you do when you pay a smuggler. And so this is often the kind of poorest people, the most desperate people will try to migrate that way. It's very, very, very difficult to get to the border right now uh, migrating that way. There, there's just there's so much enforcement, not just in the United States, but in Mexico and Central America, that you're likely to get pulled off a bus. You're likely to get stopped at a checkpoint. So you can try to migrate that way. You almost you almost definitely won't succeed. Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, what's the Mexican government policy on this, given that these caravans are going through Mexico. Like, what what have they been doing historically, like over the past few years, and has any of that changed recently in light of like this increase over the past year? So, under the Trump administration, the Mexican government basically was pressured into cracking down on the movement of caravans through Mexico. The Biden administration made it very clear to the Mexican government that they should continue that level of enforcement. Which is why, if you're in a caravan or you're thinking about joining a caravan the chances of, of you making it even, even to the Mexican border are very small because the Guatemalan government is also cracking down. The Honduran government is also cracking down. But certainly the Mexican government, probably more than any of those, if they see a large group of migrants just walking down the road or in a commercial bus, they're going to detain those people, which is why most people now who are serious about getting to the border, who have any ability to, to pay a smuggler, will pay a smuggler. Um, it's just a lot more effective. Your chances of getting to the border, your chances of getting across the border are much higher. And so the way that works is, and this is one of the things I find sort of most remarkable about, about the, way, sort of the, the way that migration works right now, no matter where you are in Central America, and there, there are some places in Honduras and Guatemala that are incredibly remote, you know, where you don't have cell phone service, you don't have internet, maybe you don't have running water or electricity, you can find a smuggler. The networks run so deep. And so typically the first your first link to the smuggling network is someone who lives in your in your neighborhood. And in Guatemala, that usually means it's someone who speaks your indigenous, your native language, someone who you trust. And it's a it's just a long chain with lots of links that leads from this village in Guatemala or Honduras all the way to the not not just in some cases to the border, but beyond the border into the interior of the United States. And so often people are traveling by commercial bus, but it's commercial buses that are kind of rented out by smuggling networks. In some cases, they're they're forced into tractor trailers, just crammed with people. In some cases, they're taking vans full of people. And then that's usually how they get all the way to northern Mexico, which is where things get probably sort of the most dangerous. Northern Mexico is, I mean, most northern Mexico is controlled by various cartels. They're taken to a safe house, um, usually, you know, a few hundred meters from the, the Rio Grande. They stay there for a few days and then they're led across the river, usually in, in groups, um, groups that can be as big as several hundred people. And the way that people are migrating now, they're not trying to evade Border Patrol. So when they cross the river, their, their goal is to find U.S. officials and turn themselves in um, because these are, these are usually children or families who are applying for asylum. And so there's no interest in you know, trying to, to flee and cross through the desert, which is very dangerous. They're just trying to be processed through. U.S. Border Patrol through the system, um, and then eventually they hope be released. And what's the most common basis for which people are applying for asylum? So there's there are a whole range of there are a whole range of reasons why 
people would want asylum. Um, I think our, our immigration system, it's probably no secret to any of your listeners, is so fundamentally broken. Um, and, and the asylum system is, is a huge part of that kind of mess. And I don't, I don't think there's any sort of politics involved in, in that statement. It's like it's broken from anyone's perspective. There are a lot of ways in which it doesn't work. And so one of the problems is, you know, if you're fleeing economic devastation in Central America or you're fleeing the, the impact of the hurricanes or, you know, chronic malnutrition in, in the highlands of Guatemala, you know, none of those things really sort of put you in a category of asylum in the United States. It generally has to be like political persecution. It can be right? political Something persecution. Yeah. And it's also the, the, the designation or the distinction has changed a lot under Trump and is now sort of changing again under Biden. It's kind of a moving target. You know, I think the, the general idea is like persecution because of your your membership of a particular group. Right. So that could be your political belief. It could be your religious belief. And, and a lot of people who are arriving at the border don't necessarily have that case to make. You know, they're fleeing awful conditions in their home countries, but it may not fit neatly into an asylum category. And so one of the problems that I think we sort of face as a country trying to figure out what its immigration policy should look like is, is trying to look at who's coming to the border, people who are clearly in desperate need of help and protection but who don't find that help or protection under our current system. And so what should the system look like that would, you know, sort of provide provide some kind of shelter, some kind of assistance for those people um, without being too broad a category where, you know, all of Central America potentially could could seek some version of asylum or protection. In the US. It's a difficult balance to make. And that's something that obviously Washington is struggling with now. Well, let's talk about what's happening on, on at the border itself and on our side of the border. I think one thing that's difficult for our listeners and, and frankly difficult for me to figure out is just trying to cut through the politicization of this whole thing, like where, you know, Democrats, you know, like I'm a Democrat, we were talking about kids in cages and castigating Trump during his administration, and I think rightfully about the conditions at the border and separation of families. And you had relative silence from members of Trump's party, but now Biden's in power, the conditions don't look great. And you have Republicans rushing to the border talking about the conditions and making claims of hypocrisy of Democrats. And it all seems like the politics are overwhelming on this issue. What, if anything, has changed under Biden as it relates to like the conditions on the ground? Like, What is he deservedly getting flack for? What is he making progress on? And, and where do you see this going? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's such an important question. I mean, so let me, let's start with the kids in cages question, because I think that's what, you know, maybe the most sort of infamous policy and the most infamous, the most infamous images that we saw in some ways coming out of the Trump administration with these, these kids in like what looked like, you know, cages made for animals, right? And, and then even then people were sort of wondering, well, is this different from what happened under the Obama administration? So the thing that, that happened under the Trump administration that had never happened before was that for a period of about a year little over a year, families that crossed the border together were being separated at the border by Border Patrol agents. So, you know, a mom and her infant, a father and his teenager, whatever, many parents and children, thousands of parents and children who crossed the border were forcibly taken apart. The parents sent to one detention center and the child sent to another. That had never happened before, at, at least at any kind of scale. And it is not happening under the Biden administration. It's a fundamental difference between Trump administration and any other administration. And, and just to say, I mean, I think everyone's familiar with that policy, the sort of family separation policy, as it's known. 
those parents, in many cases, hundreds of them, remain separated from their children, right? So these are going on four years. Parents are back in Central America. They were deported without their kids. And these kids are often living in the United States with, you know, uncles, aunts, cousins, grandparents. Um, so we are still dealing with the consequences of that policy. Are we, uh, is there truth to the claim that we've lost track of, of where some of these kids are? In, in several hundred cases, the government is having trouble locating the parents. So they're not 100% sure if the parents are back in Central America. If the, and this is largely a function of very bad record keeping under the Trump administration. But there's still an effort to try to figure out where, where parents are, if they need to be reunified with their children. I mean, I'm sad to say, but in some cases, there, there are concerns that the parents might actually be dead. Very limited number of cases. But, you know, these were parents who were deported back to Central America to some dangerous places. And so it's been four years yeah, and probably have to make that long journey back. One hundred percent, exactly. There, there, and I think that's something that isn't really talked about enough. That you know, if you separate a parent from from his or her child and deport them back to Central America, that parent is going to try to come back to the United States to be with. It's just a natural impulse, right? And so that's what we saw. We saw a lot of people try to come back to the border, and in many cases they were deported a second time. I mean, it's it's just to me one of the one of the saddest stories I've ever covered. So anyway, so that that policy of family separation was really a Trump era policy. But and this is where things get a little bit messy. So that is the policy of forcibly taking a parent from a child at the border. But there are other ways in which families get separated. And in some of those ways, some of those things are still happening now. So, for example, a family migrates to the United States from Central America, but they realize at the border or after getting deported together as a family that sort of the only category right now of people who are just permitted to cross the border, who are being processed, are unaccompanied children. So this is happening a lot now at the border, where you have a family that crosses the border, they're deported together as a family, and then they have to make this horrible decision, right? Do we send the kid alone as an unaccompanied minor, knowing that that way the child will be accepted into the United States? And at least if I'm a parent, at least I know I've gotten my kid to, to safety. And just a quick question on that policy. Is that an official policy or is that unofficial? Is that a Biden era change in emphasis? Was that true under Trump too? Like that question of like accepting unaccompanied minors, where does that come from? And and how do we make heads or tails of that? Yeah. So for for a while, the Trump administration was deporting unaccompanied minors, not all of them, but many of them, most of them for, for some stretch of time. Then a court ordered that a court ordered the Trump administration not to do that, to accept unaccompanied minors. They, they, they said it was illegal to just sort of expel them. Then the court order was reversed. The government then had the ability, if they so chose, to expel unaccompanied minors. But the Biden administration said, no, we don't think that's human. That's not a humanitarian policy. We won't do it. We will accept. And Biden has said this very publicly you know, we will accept unaccompanied minors or we will we will not expel or deport unaccompanied minors. And so now it is before it was sort of a court order. And now it is a Biden era policy. Like this is something that we we won't do because we don't we don't think it's um, humane. The result of, though, of this is that there are children or teenagers in Central America who hear that this is now a policy. If I come to the U.S. border, I will get across. And as we discussed earlier, that can be a, a kind of a pull factor. And then you know, the sort of sadder version of this is if you're fa- if you're a family coming across, you're not necessarily going to be uh, admitted into the U.S. or processed by by U.S. authorities and then have to decide whether or not you're going to send the child alone. Wow. 
And so what what are the conditions right now? Like what facilities are we using? Like, are they overtaxed? Like we're reading a lot about like trying to commandeer hotel rooms, et cetera. Like what are those conditions like? And, you know, are, have we improved things dramatically since the day of days of cages uh, and tents? Yeah. I mean, so I, you know, I'm not the best person to ask about the, the conditions on the U.S. side because it's mostly my my colleagues in the U.S. who cover that. But what I'd say is like, there has been, from what I've seen, a pretty dramatic effort over the last like month, especially, to increase the number of facilities. Because the biggest problem was simply a lack of space, and so you had these ORR facilities that were just you know at like five times capacity. And so, even if the conditions were were decent, if they're that overcrowded, especially in the middle of a pandemic, we're talking about conditions that are that are not humane. And so the the biggest effort. I think on the Biden administration side has been just increasing the number of beds available. And so they've, they're, they're using a whole range of different kinds of facilities to do that. One of the challenges though, is that like, so you've got two different agencies in charge of processing children and housing children throughout the process. One is, is CBP customs and border protection. And, and that is an agency that has that really you know, has very limited capacity to process and, and house children. That's not what the agency was created to do. And that's often where the conditions are are worst, and that's often where the the spaces are most overcrowded. Um, and so, if you're the Biden administration, you've got to increase capacity not just within one agency, but within two agencies. So, I think that's been part of the complication. My sense is that things have gotten better within the last couple of weeks, um, but that there's still a huge range of conditions. And you talk to some advocates, for example, I was talking to some some lawyer, immigration lawyers in Florida, who were saying actually, like the the shelter spaces there, most of them. Are, are not too bad. But you've probably seen reports of other folks, other lawyers who've had access to facilities in other parts of the country, especially in Texas and Arizona, who've had a horrible things to say about the conditions. Um, one of the challenges is that there's very limited, almost zero access for journalists right now in these places. Um, and so we don't really know. Well, and what's the basis of that policy? of excluding journalists? Like, is it to privacy of the families or like, what, what's the, what do they say to justify that? They often say it's privacy of the children, right? These are, these are young kids. Um, I think also they're, they're moving very quickly to get these places opened. And I think, you know, maybe there's a, a, a thought that trying to accommodate journalists slows down that process. There's of course the pandemic, which makes everything more complicated in terms of access. But my, my sense is that, you know, there is a way to do this safely and responsibly that, you know, we should, the sort of American people should have a window into what these facilities look like. Yeah. Well, final question for you. You know, our sense based on the data is that we should expect to continue if, if history is a guide, continue to see increase of people coming to the border through probably May. With that being said, like over the course of the next few months, what, do you, what are some of the things that our listeners should be on the lookout for in terms of key decisions from our government? What are some of the big forks in the road we have here that you're keeping an eye on right now? One thing that I think is is important that we're going to, you know, we're going to watch this play out over the next few months is the sort of broader, you know, now uh, Vice President Kamala Harris has been named as sort of like kind of an envoy, a senior envoy to Mexico and Central America to try, kind of tackle the root causes of migration which is kind of ironic because Biden played that same role in the Obama administration, right? Where he spent a lot of time in Central America when there was a previous surge of unaccompanied minors. I think we need to all sort of think about what it means to tackle the root causes of migration and what can be expected from an effort to try to deter 
many, many incredibly desperate people from trying to find some version of a better life, right? You know, is that something that you can do with a cash transfer? Is that something you can do by sending some farming experts to increase or to improve agricultural practices? I think we have to sort of think as a, as a country about this is not necessarily like a short-term problem, but, you know, these countries in Central America have deep fundamental problems of governance. They're deeply affected by climate change. Food insecurity in Guatemala is as bad as almost anywhere in sub-Saharan Africa. You know, these are not things that are going to be solved with short-term aid packages, nor are they problems that can be solved with changes in policy at the border. These, these countries are close to us. They're, they're almost our neighbors. And I think we have to figure out kind of what our relationships with them should look like beyond just deterring migration. The other thing I would say is, and I don't think this is talked about enough as a part of this, this issue, is our dependence as a country on undocumented labor, right? Like we, we haven't talked about this yet, but like when we discuss the reasons why people come to the United States, maybe reason number one, or at least very close to the top of the list is the absolute certainty when you leave Central America that you're going to have a job waiting for you in Florida or Texas or California or, or wherever, right? And I've watched this happen in real time where like I spend a lot of time with immigrant, immigrant communities in the United States. Someone arrives on a Friday and they have a job on a Monday. And that's because there's a need for that, per right? There's a demand for that person's labor. And that person in many cases is making well over minimum wage. They're, they're doing a job that their employer can't find some Americans to do that job. That person is paying taxes or taxes is being, are being taken out of that person's salary. It, you know, if there were no jobs available in the United States, you know, if the labor market wasn't as dependent on, on a flow, a constant flow of people coming from Mexico and Central America, there wouldn't be a constant flow of people coming from Mexico and Central America. Yeah, and it strikes me that if the business community really wanted to to add some humanity and a level of organization and predictability to that process, because, you know, like, obviously, you're not going to, de the demand is not, is not going to go away overnight. It's more like, can we just make that a transparent, fair and humane process? If the business community really wanted that, I feel like we can get there. Right. If there really was yeah. political will behind that. Right. I mean, I think, you know, it, lots of people on both sides of the aisle will discuss the, you know, increase of legal work visas as a key part of solving this problem, right? That there are some very large portion of the people who are now migrating to the United States would very happily stay, maybe you know, wait a little, a little bit longer in their home countries if there was a path to working legally in the United States temporarily. Um, because in, in many cases, people don't want to move permanently to the United States. They want to work in the U.S. for a while, make some money, and then go back to their home countries. Well, Kevin, this was illuminating. Thank you so much for all your reporting on this issue and, and for helping us just understand it a, a bit better. We really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Anytime. Ravi, I really enjoyed listening to that conversation. And I was thinking about what stood out to me about it most. And there were a lot of things that he pointed out that I didn't know or that I found illuminating. But actually what jumped out at me more than anything else was just when he went back over the the family separation policy and just just described something that I already knew, but described, you know, families being ripped apart. I I don't think there'll ever be a time where I don't get nauseous thinking about the idea that that's something our country actually did. You know, one part of it that I hadn't thought enough about until this interview is just what the journey even to the border is like. We spend so much time thinking about 
what happens at the border, but not, you know, what it's like to go from Guatemala to the Mexican border, for instance, in some cases in a caravan, sometimes walking. You know, it made me think about some of my family's history during partition in India, you know, where people were walking, I think it was the largest mass migration of people in world history. And I was just reading a book about it recently, where just people were walking distances that you and I wouldn't even drive in a car if we could help it. And that's the same situation here. It honestly made me reflect on myself about how technically I'd been thinking about this. Just like I, I've been thinking about it as a policy issue, as a, as a political issue. I think this mental illness we have as a country is that we think about everything from a partisan political frame. And it just kind of pushed me to think about the people in a different way, not just at the border and not even just the separation issue itself, but just the journey. What 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 would lead somebody to take that journey in the first place and what that journey must be like? And then what it would be like being turned away after all of that or turned away without your child. I mean, it's just horrific. It's always interesting to talk to people like Kevin who you know report on and operate in a world where partisan politics is completely irrelevant to what they do. And and it and because of that, it allows them to you know, reach very objective and very human conclusions about things, right? I mean, he's just telling you what's going on and he's just telling you what the what the elements are of it. And he responds to questions about partisan implications and and partisan causes, you know, for certain parts of it. But but for the most part, like he doesn't digest any of that through that lens. And I think the biggest takeaway his description, I agree, of of what that journey is like for, for me is the biggest takeaway for the listeners because we always come back to what can you take from this and then use in those conversations. And I think when people are talking about this issue, one thing we don't often try anymore is humanizing the people who are coming across the border. And to me, a really compelling point is imagine what life has to be like for you to put yourself through that. And then imagine what life has to be like when you when you put yourself and your family through that and you fail and you make the determination that where you are returning to is so unacceptable for your child to grow up there that you will send your child back across the border knowing you're never going to see them again so that they can have success in that country. Like that's that's the kind of stuff that usually we understand historically happened during the Holocaust, during you know, during periods like that. It's important to understand that they're human beings, parents who are making those choices just just real close to our country and, and as they enter our country. Yeah, amen to that. For Grab an Oar this week, I have something a little bit different. It's for Missourians, and it's actually more of a grab a beer. And let me explain. At Veterans Community Project this week, we, along with Four Hands Brewing Company out of St. Louis, unveiled a, a new philanthropic beer. It's, it's Four Hands Brewing's new beer. They have this very popular beer in St. Louis uh, called Citywide, and they are now launching a beer called Statewide. As people who listen to this pod regularly know, we are taking Veterans Community Project nationwide. We're building campuses now in, 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 uh, in several states, but we also have expanded within Missouri from Kansas City to St. Louis, and timed with that, Four Hands is putting out this new beer uh, statewide. It is a, a hazy pale ale. It's it's very good. And a dollar from every purchase from every beer that you buy goes to Veterans Community Project. So I'm just drawing people's attention to the idea that you can drink a beer and help us uh, help homeless veterans. That sounds great. And it's just a reminder that I need to come down to Kansas City soon and meet all of our believers down there. Yeah, you should get here soon. And we'll have some statewide and maybe do like a live majority 54 when that is a thing that people can do. 
After last week's episode, we got a bunch of voicemails just sort of letting us know how much they appreciated the episode. We appreciate hearing from you very much. Just a reminder, you can leave us a voicemail and let us know what you'd like us to address, and we'll try and get to it in, in an upcoming episode. 508-687-2589. 508-687-2589. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram, and our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. <laughs> I like it when you said they were perfect. <laughs> yeah. What am I doing here? I, maybe we won't. Ta- maybe we won't talk about my the weirdest humble brag. Oh, it's going in there. <laughs> no, don't put it in there. No, no we got oh, you. That's so good. One hundred percent putting in your near perfect thinking... blood work to this ad. Okay, my lapse of modesty aside, Athletic Greens is your all-in-one superfood powder. Uh, that's your. I'm not gonna do. You go. You go. No, Grace. I think you should leave this ad in in its entirety. No. No, and- <laughs> too many people make jokes to me about Athletic Greens ads. I don't need that. I don't need any more people. Well, you're a jam- genuine believer. We're genuine evangelists. I think we should. I think we should leave this. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.